taxes. Got your attention, probably. What? This is a rhetorical question. I don't want people hollering out answers. But what do you think of when you think about taxes? Personally, I absolutely hate filing taxes, especially the filing part. So much so that when my wife and I got married, we decided that I would do all the budgeting, I would pay all the bills, I'd keep track of everything for the entire year if she would just do the taxes. That's, that's how much I absolutely hate doing taxes. And our, our life has been changing every single year of marriage, different jobs, different everything. And so every year it's a different W-2 or something changes, laws change. And so we can't just use the same, same forms from the year before. The wording's different or, or whatever. But I absolutely hate doing taxes. Also, don't really like paying taxes either. And I'll just... I'll throw it out there. This is my personal opinion. Taxes, I'm not saying that Christians should, should not enjoy paying taxes, but that's just, that's just my thing. Even though, even though I can see that most of the, my money that's going to pay taxes is actually going to important things like roads and education and judges and defense and cops and social securities and parks, all these different things that I do enjoy. But for some reason, it's still, when I hear the word taxes or see those forms, I just, I'm not happy. Benjamin Franklin once wrote, wise man, he said, but in this world, nothing can be certain except death and taxes. How true. And there were even taxes when Jesus was alive. So today in our passage, we're going to see that the religious rulers, these religious rulers who are offended by Jesus, that are trying to trap Jesus, they're going to use this very controversial topic of taxes. So if you're brand new to Hiawatha, again, welcome to our church. We have been in a study in the book of Matthew, uh, which is the first book in the New Testament, writing all about Jesus, his life, his teachings, his miracles, and uh, we're going to get to his death and resurrection in just a few weeks. We've been in Matthew for a long time, a year and a half. We're starting to near the end. So our passage today is actually in Jesus's last uh, week of life before he is uh, crucified. And what we just saw the previous two weeks, so it actually was in the same, probably the same day, or at least within two days, but uh, we preached on them the previous two weeks. Jesus has just got done teaching three parables, and in these parables, he's been calling out the religious rulers for their hypocrisy and their evil. And so that's where we're picking up in our story today. So it's just on the heels of Jesus calling out the religious rulers for them actually being evil. So today we're in Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. It'll be up there on the screen. It's also in your uh, handout as well. Starting in verse 15. Then the Pharisees, so these religious rulers, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, speaking of, of, of Jesus. And they, the Pharisees, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. 
and they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you how we see you, your character. We see your mission. We are greatly reminded to not worry about things that are Caesar's, but to worry about the things that are of you. Speak to us today through your word. pray this in your name. Amen. So this morning, our passage begins, verse 15. It begins with, Then the Pharisees went out and plotted how to entangle him, how to entangle Jesus in his words. So first of all, we have to ask, who are these Pharisees? Who are these people that are plotting to trap and to trick Jesus? So we've seen throughout Matthew, the Pharisees are Jesus' main opponents, main enemies. Although they should be great friends with him, because Jesus as the Son of God and the Pharisees, as the ruler of God's people, they should be, they should be great friends. They should be unified together, but we see that they have been opposing Jesus since the very beginning. So these Pharisees, they're religious rulers. They are people who have been entrusted by God to lead God's people, to protect God's people, to teach God's people, and to shepherd them. But instead, they were self-righteous. They used the people to give themselves power and status and comfort and honor. And they actually put up more physical barriers that kept people away from God rather than helping them come near God. And their evil culminated with their rejection of God in flesh. They didn't repent. They didn't believe and follow Jesus, but rather they despised him and rejected him. And they even now are trying to get him executed. So why? Why, why do they hate Jesus so much? Why, as, as we just read in verse 15, why are they trying to entangle and trap Jesus in his words? Like I said, right before this, Jesus has just finished teaching three parables where he essentially called out the religious rulers and told them that because of their evil and because of their rejection of him, that the kingdom of God will be taken away from them and given to a people that are producing fruits, taken away from these people who are entrusted with it and given to people who actually were pursuing God, who actually had good spiritual fruit coming out of their lives. Jesus ended one of these parables by telling the Pharisees, he said, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your mind and believe him. So this would be horribly, horribly offensive to the hearers. So think about a people group or a person who their whole self-worth was based on how well they performed, how well they followed the rules and the laws, how well they looked, how moral and clean they looked. And Jesus is telling them, the worst of the worst, the scum of society, the most evil people that we know of in our society, they are entering this kingdom that was supposed to be for you and your people. They're entering it before 
you. So obviously, Jesus is horribly offending them. He's challenging this, this structure that they've created that has given them power and given them honor and given them status and comfort and wealth, and they want him dead. They could have repented, and again and again, Jesus is patient with them. And we even see that a few Pharisees actually did repent and did believe, but the majority of them did not repent, did not acknowledge that he really was who he said he was, the Son of God, and instead put all their time and energy into trying to trap Jesus and ultimately plan his execution. We've even seen previous attempts fail of the Pharisees and the religious rulers trying to trap and get Jesus killed. After Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, proving that he had authority over the Sabbath, over one of God's laws, instead of faith and repentance and belief, the Pharisees, in Matthew 12, it says, the Pharisees, after that, they went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. And then later, Jesus proved, he proved that he was the Son of God. He proved that he was who he said he was by raising someone from the dead. And not just like doing CPR or getting out the the defibrillator, but he actually raised a man from the dead who had been dead for days, a man whose body was rotting and decaying. But again, instead of repentance and belief, the Pharisees, they made plans to put Jesus to death. John 11 says, So from that day on, from the day when they saw Jesus raise a rotting corpse, from the dead, breathe life back into it, call him out of the grave. From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Back to our passage today, verse 16. And they, the Pharisees, they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearance. So we see the Pharisees, they try a new tactic. This time, they don't come themselves. They send their disciples. We're not really sure why. Maybe it would just look a little less intimidating. Maybe they're just trying to fool Jesus into thinking that these people actually weren't Pharisees. Because maybe they, you know, because they're the, they're the disciples. Jesus didn't know that. We don't really know why. But they send their disciples along with the Herodians. We don't know a ton about who these uh, Herodians are. Except uh, what we do know is that they were a pro-Roman group. So at this time, the people of God, the Israelites, the Jews, were being oppressed horribly by the Romans. And the Herodians, these were a group of people that were pro-Rome. They were for the Roman occupation and oppression and their rule over the Jews. These guys are actually enemies of the Pharisees. So the Herodians and the Pharisees actually were enemies. They hated each other. But they work together in this instance in order to fight a common enemy, in order to fight Jesus to keep their status and their power and their control. And so we see what their trap is. They start by setting up Jesus by giving him four compliments. They say, teacher, we know that you are true. We know that you teach the way of God truthfully. You don't care about other people's appearances. You're not swayed them as well. So they start by giving him four compliments, which is pretty ironic because these are the people that actually hate Jesus. They hate him so much that they're trying to trap him and get him executed. But they start off by giving him four compliments. 
And they do this in front of the crowds. And they do this in a way that demands Jesus give an answer. You can't just blow them off and leave. And they also, they do it in a way that Jesus has to say yes or no. They try to trick him into not just explaining a nice long answer that will help Jesus get out of this, but they, they phrase it in a way so Jesus has to say yes or no. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? And they also set him up by making him either offend one of the two parties, either offending Rome or offending the Jews, when they say, you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. So basically, they come up to him and they say, Jesus, you're a really great teacher. You know the ways of God. You're not going to be swayed by who's ever in the crowd. You speak the truth no matter what. And you're not going to shy away from anything just because of who your audience is. So answer this question for us. And we have two sides. We have the Romans as Herodians who want Jesus to say, yes, you should pay your taxes. And on the other side, the, the Jewish religious leaders, that if Jesus does say yes, they know that they can trap him and the people will stop following him. Verse 17, they say, Jesus, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So I know most of you, when you hear this name Caesar, you're thinking about this guy, right? First guy that comes to mind. I know Tyler Leeper is, right? $5 hot and ready, right? Actually, Caesar was not just this guy. He's actually, it's the title. It's the name of the ruler of Rome. So here's an actual picture of what Caesar looks like. So this is the Caesar that was ruling at the time of our story today. So basically, they're at, this is their trap. They're asking, is it lawful? And probably a better way to say this, is it profitable? Because it was uh, technically lawful to pay. The Old Testament, there are some references where God has told his people, it is lawful for you to pay taxes to the, the country or the, the nation that is occupying. So it's probably better translated profitable. Is it profitable? Is it good for us as God's people to give money to this foreign ruler, this foreign oppressor? Many scholars actually believe that the Jewish people were being taxed up to 50% of their income by this oppressing people, by, by, by Rome. So they're being squished, they're being uh, exploited, oppressed by Rome. And so they ask this question, this very charged question, this question that people have very, very deep feelings about paying taxes to Caesar. And they think probably what this is, is actually a poll tax. So not just a tax that goes to the temple, not just a tax that goes to Roman general that will help secure their borders and build their roads and, and give them other services. But they think that this is a poll tax, and this is actually a tax that just goes to Caesar, just goes to the, the Roman ruler to make him more wealthy, to build his palace bigger. So they try to trap Jesus. If he says, yes, you should pay the taxes, the Roman rulers, these Herodians, they're going to be happy, but it's going to alienate the Jews. It's going to alienate Jesus' disciples and followers. Jesus is going to seem like a sellout, a traitor to his own people, and demonstrating that he really doesn't have great devotion to God. But if he says no, the Herodians, in turn, 
are going to get Rome to arrest him as an anti-government rebel who is raising an insurrection and try to get him executed. But Jesus, verse 18, aware of their malice, so he sees right through these compliments. He knows what they're really trying to do. Aware of their malice said, why do you put me to a test? Hypocrites. Jesus realizes that this isn't actually an honest question, but it's rather a test, a trap. And that's why he calls them out. That's why he calls them hypocrites. They say they want to know God's truth, but their action shows that they're really just there to trap Jesus. Important side note here is to remember that Jesus always welcomes authentic questions and doubts. We've seen it over and over so far in Matthew. Jesus has lots and lots and lots of patience with people who have questions, who don't quite get it, who have doubts at times. We're going to continue to see Jesus' disciples get it wrong again and again and again. They're going to continue to have doubts. They're going to continue to have questions. And Jesus is not against those. He's not against authentic questions. And if you do have those, don't stay there. It's okay to have them, but don't stay there. Jesus calls us out of those questions. He calls us to belief in him. But when we are struggling with some doubts and questions, he's patient with us. All right, so Jesus responds now to this trap that they've laid for him. Verse 19, he says, Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. So this is a picture of what a denarius looks like, the two different sides of this coin. It was the amount that you'd receive for a day's wages if you were a laborer. It was minted and was created by Rome. Obviously, it has a stamp of Rome on there. And it was, it was used, it was the coin used to pay this poll tax, which is in question today. So they bring Jesus the coin, verse 20, and Jesus said to them, whose likeness an inscription is on this coin? So on this coin, on this denarius, you see that there is an inscription on it. There is a picture of Caesar. And so uh, there is an inscription on the, the, the part with Caesar's face, and it uh, said, Tiberius Caesar, so Tiberius was his name, and Caesar is his title, the son of the divine Augustus. So basically saying, this is Caesar. He's the son of God. On the opposite side was a picture of the Roman goddess Pax, who was the, uh, the high priest. What's really interesting here, and Jesus actually doesn't address this here, but we, since we know this, we can kind of see what's going on. So Jesus has actually come as the true son of God despite Caesar's claims all across the Roman Empire about him being the son of God. And Jesus has come as the true high priest, an even greater and mightier king and ruler than this Caesar, which is pretty cool to think about. All right, so how does Jesus, how does Jesus respond to their trap? How does he get out of it? Verse 21, they said, answering his question about whose likeness is on here, whose inscription is on this coin. They said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. So instead of trapping them, he had this impossible question to answer. Jesus answers in a way that both amazes them, the Pharisees and the Herodians, 
and it marvels them so that they leave speechless. They come both sides ready to trap Jesus and bring him before the courts and get him executed, and they leave speechless and amazed. Jesus answers essentially by saying, pay the tax to Caesar. Yes, go ahead. But he's teaching them that the reason they should pay the tax to Caesar is not because Caesar deserves it or that Caesar is greater than God, but exactly the opposite. Pay the tax to Caesar because God's sovereign over all. God has appointed Caesar to rule at this time. The money has Caesar's image on it. It's his money, so give it back to him. I came to bring a different kind of kingdom that's not worried about that kind of stuff. The ESV study Bible describes what Jesus is doing here. They write, Jesus is not establishing a political kingdom in opposition to Caesar. So his followers should pay taxes and should obey civil laws. There are matters that belong to the realm of civil government, and there are other matters that belong to God's realm. Historically, when the church and state have been too closely aligned, the result most often has been the compromise of the church. So we're going to unpack this, this answer by Jesus. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. Let's start with give to Caesar what is Caesar. The Bible teaches, Old Testament and New Testament, that authority and government are appointed by God, but, but, that our ultimate allegiance, our ultimate hope, our ultimate citizenship is not in our country or our government, but it is in Christ. Listen to that again. Our ultimate allegiance, citizenship, and our ultimate hope does not rest in our own country or our own government, but in Christ. The Bible says lots and lots about this. We, we referenced a little bit uh, earlier in the sermon about what the Old Testament said. It was okay to pay taxes uh, to even, even uh, different nations that were controlling Israel at the time. Now we're going to briefly look at a couple passages in the New Testament. So after uh, Jesus dies and is resurrected, and they just briefly summarize the Bible's teaching on, on this. They speak of the importance, there is an importance for us as Christians to pay our taxes and to be good citizens. And now one, one quick exception before we get into this is that obviously God is much more important than the government. So if, if our government or if our rulers or whatever tell us to do something that uh, God says not to do, God trumps whatever our government would say. But even, even with that, God still does tell his people to be respectful of the authority that he's placed over them, to pay their taxes, to be good citizens. We're, uh, we start in Romans 13. It says, uh, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever, or hang on, before we do verse 2, he's writing to the Romans. He's writing to, I mean, years after Jesus, but still, Rome is still occupying and oppressing God's people. So he's writing not just to a great government, not just to a people who have rulers over them that are really good, but to people who are actually being oppressed. Let's continue. Verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will occur judgment. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. 
For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. And then in 1 Peter, uh, the disciple Peter writes as well, starting in verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So we're not going to spend a lot, a lot of time on this, but basically we get three reasons. Why should Christians be good citizens? Why should us as disciples of Jesus, why should we pay our taxes and obey the law and authority? And now another side note, we're not talking about politics at all. We're really not talking about political parties or which one's better or whether or not we think taxes are great or not. But we're just talking about strictly what, what Scripture says here and why the New Testament teaches us to be good citizens, pay our taxes on authority, under authority. We get three reasons. The first one is to honor God. So by obeying, if we want to obey God, he says, be respectful of the authority that I put above you. Pay your taxes, obey the laws. Secondly, he's, he, uh, we see in these two passages that it makes our city a better place to live in, our nation a better place to live in, if people are following the laws, if people are, are living together for the common good. And finally, especially in First uh, Peter, he argues that through being a good citizen, we're going to reach the lost, we're going to reach our neighbors. That by doing good, it said, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. If we don't follow the law, if we're not good citizens, if we're only looking out for ourselves and our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers see that, they're not going to want to be drawn to the same God that we worship. They're not going to see the gospel played out if we are bad citizens. All right, so touched on that a little bit. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but now the next part. Give to God what is God. So even though as Christians, we're called to be good citizens. We need to never forget that our first allegiance, our first hope is to Christ. And our, citizen, our citizenship, if we are followers of Jesus, is not here in America or any other country that you're from. Our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3.20 writes, But our citizenship, speaking to the church, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And earlier in Matthew, Jesus taught, But seek first the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Israel, not the kingdom of Rome, not the kingdom of America, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added to you. So give to God what is God's. Jesus' main teaching right here to us, the church. So just like the coin was Caesar's because it had his image stamped on it. Humanity is God's because we are made in God's image. We see in Genesis, do I have it up there? 
Uh, yep, in Genesis 1, as, as God is creating everything in the universe, he comes to man. And in verse uh, 27, we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we are gods because we are made in his image. We are stamped with his image. Nothing else, trees, animals, the earth does not have God's image on it, but humanity does. And not only should we give ourselves to God because he is our creator and he's made us and his image is stamped on us, but also we should give our lives to God because he has given us a new life, both a new life now and an eternal life forever. Colossians 3.1 says, speaking to the church, again, speaking to Christians, you have been raised with Christ. And because of that, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And in Ephesians, we read, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So apart from Christ, the Bible describes us as being spiritually dead. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So not only should we give our lives back to God because he created us and gave us a spiritual life, but third, we should also give our lives back to God because he has bought us. He has bought us back. He has redeemed us. He has paid our debt. First Corinthians 6, we read, again, speaking to Christians, speaking to the church, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Listen to this. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This third reason why we should give God back our lives, because he's redeemed us, because he's bought us, because he's paid our debt, is beautifully described and illustrated in uh, Les Miserables, which is one of, my favorite, one of my favorite movies. Not one of my favorite books, though. It's actually like, 1,500 pages long. It's like as long as the Bible. I would never get through that. But the, the, mu- the movie and the, the play, the musical, are fantastic. So let me, let me set up the scene for you. So there's this character. His name is Jean Valjean, which is really fun to say. I really enjoy saying it. His name is Jean Valjean, and he's a criminal. He's been in prison, hard work, labor, for 19 years, and he finally gets out. But he has no one. He has no money. He has no help. No one to turn to. No place to sleep. And so after just getting released from prison, after 19 years, he immediately starts to think about going back into crime because he has no other other option. And so he ends up at night sleeping outside on a park bench or something, and and this, this bishop, this pastor, comes to him and very generously welcomes Jean Valjean into his house and lets him sit at his own table, lets him eat his own food, and gives him a bed to sleep in. And they have this conversation, and Jean Valjean is kind of confused. Why is this guy doing this for me? Doesn't he realize that I'm a criminal, that I've just got out of prison? 
you know? And he goes to bed at night, and he's lying in bed. And you, I don't know if it says this in the book, in, in the movie you don't see it, but you can think that something's going on through his head, deciding, you know, I need to survive. This guy's a fool for letting me into his home. But at the same time, I just experienced this crazy forgiveness and grace and generosity. But he falls back in to his, his original nature, and he goes and he steals the silver. And even this, this priest, this bishop guy, pastor, he wakes up and he comes and he uh, catches him and Jean Valjean hits him, knocks him out and he leaves. The next morning, the next morning, uh, the cops or the police come back with Jean Valjean in chains. They come back to this bishop and they say, look what we found. We found this guy and he's telling us that you gave him all your silver. He's telling you, or he's telling us that you gave all your wealth to this criminal. And, and the pastor says to them, actually he turns to Jean Valjean and he says, how foolish are you? Why did you not take the candlesticks? Or the silver, I forget which one it is. Why didn't you take the candlesticks? They're worth far more than the other silver. How foolish are you? And he just stands there stunned. What is going on? You offered me this great generosity and acceptance, and I betray you. I, I assault you. I steal all your wealth. And then when I come back, you forgive me. And he is just, he, he has no idea what's going on. So the police release him from his handcuffs. And there's this great, great line. The pastor comes up to Jean Valjean. And this scene ends with, with the bishop saying this to him. He says, don't you ever forget, you are a new man. You no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I have bought your soul. I have ransomed you from fear and hatred, and now I give you back to God. That's our story, Hiawatha. The rest, of, the rest of the story goes on the, sh goes on the show. Jean Valjean in a new life, this old criminal, this old life, it's dead, it's gone, and this new life lives out in, in many, many good works because he's a new man, because he has been bought. So Hiawatha Church, since your God gave himself up in order to rescue you, bring you back from the dead, and give you new life. Give him your life back in return. But you still might be wondering, okay, give God your life back. What, what, is, what exactly does that mean? Or some of you might be hoping that I just stop there and uh, leave it ambiguous so that you don't have to hear any specifics. But first of all, what is, what is giving your life back to God? What does that really mean? First of all, if you have never repented of your sin and never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for you, you can do that today. Today you can surrender your life. Just like Jean Valjean after he saw this amazing act of generosity and kindness and forgiveness, he responded to that and out of that new life that he had, good works poured out of that. You can do that today for the very first time. Or if you already have surrendered your life to God. Giving your life back to God, 
giving to God what is God's. As Jesus said today, it'll look many different ways. For Jean Valjean in our story, it meant he remembered who he was and he remembered what happened. He remembered that he had, he had his life bought. He remembered that he was forgiven. He remembered that he had been given a new chance, a new life. And from that, he was incredibly kind and generous and giving and patient and humble. He created factories where he uh, hired dozens of women, giving them work and dignity and a way to survive. He was a good Samaritan to the single mom who had nothing. And he adopted this mom's daughter when, she, when the mom died. Jean Valjean lived as though he truly was redeemed and given a new life. Even if we would get this, and most of us probably get this, even if we get this, we still hold on very tightly to our own lives, our own comfort, our own status, our own money. And we repeat this American dream over and over to ourselves, arguing that we've gotten where we are because we've worked hard and we deserve it. We think that we're especially special, that we're different than, than everyone else, that Jesus is writing to those people, not to us. We think that we're the exception or that we've already given enough of given God enough of our time, our money, our treasure, our talents. Tim Keller, who's an author, in his book, uh, Counterfeit Gods, he writes, people at the top, quote-unquote, at the top, they're eager to attribute their position to their own intellect, their own savvy and hard work. The reality is much more complicated. Personal connections, family environment, and what happens to be plain luck or we would say God's sovereignty, determines how successful a person really is. We are the products of three things, genetics, environment, and our own personal choices. But two of these factors we have no power over. We're not nearly as responsible for our own success as our popular views of God and reality lead us to think. Everything that we have has been given to us by God. Our talents, our gifts, our circumstances, our environments, our relationship. So we need to give our lives, give our lives back to God, not holding on to things, remembering that he is our creator. He has given us new life. He has bought us back. And everything that we have is ultimately a gift from him. And we, as we look around, as we're in community groups, as we're in relationship with each other, on Sunday mornings, all the time we at Hiawatha Church are seeing the Holy Spirit do this in our lives all the time as he matures us and he uses us individually and corporately to spread his gospel and to give him glory. We have the great, great excitement to this summer to be commissioning and sending out two families from our church who are going to spread the gospel beyond South Minneapolis and the Twin Cities. Our vision here at Hiawatha Church is to give God glory, and we think he receives the most glory when his gospel is spread. And we want to do that, to spread it here among our church, among ourselves, among our families, our friendships, our community groups, then out to our city, and then beyond. And we have the great joy and excitement to get to do that two different ways and two different times this summer. I want us as a church to be excited about what the Holy Spirit is doing among us and how the gospel is spreading, how he's growing our church, how he is maturing us as believers, 
and how, how he is sending some of us not just out to our city, but beyond, including Brooklyn, New York, and Berlin, Germany. The De Bruins are a family that's been with us forever. Fantastic family. And we're sending them. They're going through an organization called Reach Global, and they're going to Berlin, Germany to help uh, local Berlin pastors plant more churches and spread the gospel there. It's our joy and our honor to get to commission them next week as a church to pray over them, to send them out to Berlin. The Devereaux, Mike and Nicole. Mike was a pastor here. He helped plant a Hiawatha Church eight years ago. They're the couple on the far left. They're starting a church plant in Brooklyn, New York, called The Table. And we're going to be sending them at the end of July. Also, if you look uh, in our fireside room here, there's a poster on the wall with some of our other missionaries that are, that are serving in Costa Rica and France as well. But I would encourage you, one practical way, and there's many, many, many practical ways to give to God what is God's. But one of those ways, very practical and very timely because of where God has us as a church, is through serving and praying for and partnering with financially the Devros and the De Bruins. Use your money for something that's worth, that has eternal worth, that is spreading the gospel, and not just that will give you comfort or security or fleeting pleasure. So I'd encourage you, talk to the De Bruins, talk to the Devereaux. Read their stories, follow them on the table, get their newsletters, pray for them regularly, and especially these next few months as they move their families to new places and begin their ministry. And seriously, pray about uh, partnering them, both in prayer, regular prayer, as well as financially supporting them. It's one of the best things that we can do with our money as Christians, is to give it, give it away in ways that are spreading the gospel, especially through local churches and, and church plants. So Hiawatha Church, let that be a value that we have. We value as a church God receiving glory as his gospel is spread, spread among ourselves, spread among our neighborhood, our cities, our families, our workplaces, and beyond. Let us put our time, our talents, our treasures into that rather than into just building our own comfort, our own kingdom. So as we leave today, two things we've been talking about. First one, Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Christians should be good citizens. Christians should pay their taxes, follow the laws. Do it to give God glory. Don't, don't do it just because it's a law because you're afraid you're going to get arrested or something. Be a good citizen to give God glory and so that his gospel can spread among others. And finally, Give to God what is God's. See these two things as separate. Put our ultimate hope in giving to God what is his. Put our ultimate hope in being citizens of heaven. Put our ultimate hope in Jesus Christ, not Caesar, not our government, not politics. Give to God what is God because, not out of law, not out of guilt, give to God what is God's because he's your creator, because he's your savior, because God is your life giver, your redeemer. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gospel.
We thank you that you bought us back. You gave us new life. You created us. God, let us see that. Let us believe that. Let us be a church. Let us be a people that gives to you what is yours, that doesn't hold tight-fisted to our own money, our own comfort, our own treasure, our own time, but realizes what you have done for us and realizes that you are sovereign over everything. Everything we have, we owe to you and is really yours. Pray that the gospel would change our lives, change our hearts, that we would be a people described by generosity and giving, reflecting the cross. Pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond with two songs.